Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of the Tactical Review Podcast on Phil Craft Survival, the podcast. I'm super excited about this podcast because I'm on the road right now. I'm actually sitting in my truck in front of a hotel, stopping for the night, and decided I wanted to do this podcast because there's a lot to catch up on in Tactical Review. If you've never heard the the Tactical Review Podcast or the Phil Craft Survival Podcast, this is a podcast where we catch up on all things current events and survival preparedness and tactics and catch you up on tactics, techniques, procedures, encountering and dealing and information in the realm of understanding for those things that are going on. Um, before we get into the episode, I want to talk about some of our sponsors. One of our new sponsors is 511 Tactical. If you guys have been monitoring Phil Kraus Survival, especially me, um, this is Mike Glover. If you didn't realize, this is the the host of uh, Phil Kraus Survival Podcast today. Um, but I've been all over the United States, and I've been using 511 Tactical, their actual retail stores, to teach for free to civilians, law enforcement, and military, whoever decides to show up. And it's a cool opportunity for me to get into the store and to meet new people. I've done it in Vegas, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, just did it recently in Man- Manteca, California. And they give me the opportunity to invite people using their platform. They could si- You could sign up for the course. And I just taught Overland Basics and TCCC. That's Tactical Combat Casualty Care. So 511 Tactical is a sponsor, and we got a coupon code for you. I know you guys like to save money like I do. Take 15% off your next purchase when you use Field15. That's Field, the word F I E L D 15 at 511tactical.com. And make sure you use Field15 at checkout and you put that in the coupon code area. And also understand that, um, you know, when it comes to 511 gear, we have assessed and tested a whole bunch of 511 gear. Uh, I just I just rocked the tote on my uh, mike.a.glover on Instagram. I have their computer bag. I'm wearing literally right now their Apex pants, my favorite pants out of all the pants that they make, um, and my favorite pants, period. Uh, but make sure you check out 511tactical.com. Also, this podcast is sponsored by TA Targets. That's Tango Alpha Targets. You guys can save 10% using Philcraft. If you're setting up a range, if you're uh, getting ready for hunting season uh, and you want to get into some steel and some targetry, make sure you use Philcraft on tatargets.com and uh, save 10%. A great company, and it's where we source all of our steel that you shoot at our long gun courses with Kevin Owens, um, our, our carbine and pistol courses that you shoot with myself, Raul, and Joel. And so we're super excited about that relationship as well. Also, this podcast is sponsored by Warrior Flask. Warriorflask.com, if you use survival, you could save 10% on checkout. The coupon code is survival, one word. Look, there's a lot of different companies in the game of uh, you know the flask, containers, vessels. One of my favorites is Warrior Flask. Um, they, they make a superb and superior piece of equipment compared to everything else that's in the game. But they also support a whole bunch of different uh, small businesses like ours, including veteran-owned businesses. Make sure you check out Warrior Flask and use Survival at checkout. Also, as per, we're sponsored by KillCliff.com. Look, KillCliff.com has the new CBD drink. I'm a big fan of the Recover because I'm not a fan of caffeine. I, don't, I like to moderate caffeine. 
Um, if I'm going to accelerate a workout, I use their Ignite, but I love the Recover because it has zero sugar, has all the electrolytes and all the vitamins necessary for recovery, and it's my favorite drink. It also tastes really great because it's all natural. Use Survival 1-0 at checkout to save 10% on any reoccurring or uh, uh, initial purchase on getting your Kill Cliff at killcliff.com. Hey guys, I'm going to get into the podcast and we're going to talk about some things. I want to let you guys know I'm actually on the road right now and I just got done training uh, Union County uh, Police Department and Sheriff's Department um, in Union Union County. I think it's Union, uh, Oregon, uh, but it's basically LeGrand is the, uh, I'm sorry, Union County is the county and LeGrand is the city. Uh, but both Police Department and the Sheriff's Department train with me this uh, this weekend. Oh, fuck, it's not even the weekend. Where am I? I don't even know what I'm talking about right now. I'm um, sorry, it's been a long day. But uh, it, this week, I don't even, what day is it? It's Thursday or Friday. Um, but I, I trained with them, um, and we did a, we did everything from pistol, carbine, TCCC. We, we even did officer survival. If, you, if you're interested in doing training with us, if you're a law enforcement agency or officer, uh, a military unit, or even civilians, Make sure you just send me a personal email on mike.philcraft at gmail.com if you want to train with me personally. Yeah, I do own Philcraft Survival, but I have guys that train. Raul's the training director. I got Joel. I got Kevin. I got all these guys that train. So if you're inter- interested in training, make sure you reach out to training at philcraftsurvival.com. But if you're interested in training with me specifically, you can reach out to me personally at mike.philcraft at gmail.com. Dot com. Uh, also, this this um, I was I was asked, hey, how much does this uh, training cost for law enforcement for military? Uh, what did I charge the police officers in Oregon? We did that actually for free. If you're an agency who's getting into it, and you know Legrand, uh, uh, a good uh, brand ambassador for us for Philcraft Survival Fit on Instagram, uh, he's been with us for a year now. Justin Hernandez, J Hearn one nine on Instagram. Uh, he reached out to me and he said, hey, man, we don't have a big budget. We're just trying to do some training. And I said, you know what, man, I'm, I'm training in Ceres, California. It, it's about 11, 12 hours north of that, and I'll just do a big loop. And I'm completing the loop now going back home, but um, we train with him for free. And if you're a department where you're hurting on money and I have the time or any of my guys have the time, we will train. Raul, uh, a former law enforcement officer who is a training director for Phil Craft Survival, he has trained for free. Um, if he could tie it to a schedule and we can get it on the front end and the back end, we will provide that training. We're actually just locking down some training in Colorado. It's an it's a law enforcement only class. I think this February, um, this coming February, which is obviously 2020, um, but we're knocking out some free training on the front end or back end. Also having some paid training for law enforcement officers on Saturday and Sunday. Make you make sure you check it out at Philcraft survival.com. If you didn't know it already, we are doing YouTube. My commitment to you guys is we're going to do a YouTube video once a week. I'm going to do, I mean, here's the way I like to think about it. If you look at our YouTube channel, think of it like it's uh, the outdoor network. And on the outdoor network, you have different shows or series. That's how I want to use it as a platform. I want Raul to have his own show uh, uh, he's going to do uh, combatives and tactics. I'm going to have my own pieces. In fact, I have the field tested, uh, which is where I test an R&D equipment, which Kevin Owens will be taking over 
once he uh, finishes retiring and he comes out to Fieldcraft Survival. And then I'll be teaching tactics as well. George even has his own show on the Fieldcraft Survival channel, which he'll be dropping his first episode probably in the next couple weeks, where he's cooking, he's doing off-grid cooking, where he's cooking wild game, um, and he's always been a cook. He actually owns a small business that sells spices, uh, and he'll show you how to prepare and to cook wild game and different kinds of foods uh, in the field. Uh, and, you know, if you go camping, if, you, if you're into the outdoors, uh, if you're off-grid, or you just like cooking, it's going to be something uh, really cool uh, to, to tune into. So think of it like that. It's, it's, a, it's a network for a whole bunch of different shows, and I'm truly excited about uh, the different projects that we got going on. But go on YouTube. It's the Phil, the Phil Craft Survival Channel on YouTube. Subscribe, leave your feedback, leave your comments, and, and stay in it. Um, you know, something that we covered in Oregon uh, tactical-wise that was brought to my attention was the fact that a lot of agencies and a lot of departments, and I think this is an institution-wide thing, do not have the ability um, or do not have it in their periods of instruction to teach fire and maneuver, basic small unit tactics. So what is fire and maneuver? Well, first of all, um, forget the term fire and maneuver. It actually means firing and maneuvering, which is a battle drill in small unit tactics for combat arms. But understand that uh, what we really mean is we don't know how to move, uh, shoot, move, and communicate as units. And police academies aren't really teaching this. In fact, I was just recently approached by the uh, uh, California Highway Patrol about doing some training in this because it's desperately needed. Uh, I told you guys about the Officer O'Sullivan uh, situation in Northern California where she was tragically gunned down in front of a a house during a domestic. Uh, Other officers retreated into a carport, and they really didn't have a tactic to refer back to in order to shoot, move, and communicate to go rescue her. You know, depending on SWAT as a QRF to come bail uh, patrol officers out is not a good idea especially in the context of officer survival. It's that whole, you are your own first response. You know, I say that because I mean that for civilians, where you, don't, you aren't necessarily going to have the time to be able to depend on an agency, a, uh, whether that's a local law enforcement agency, a federal law enforcement agency, first responders with fire, EMS, et cetera, to come save you because life-critical life-threatening situations take place in seconds. Um, If you're lucky, you get minutes out of it. So if you look at the average response time, we're talking 12, 15, 20 minutes, and and more depending on where you're located, you're not going to have the time. So that, that applies to law enforcement officers as well, where you're on scene and you get in contact, you can't depend on QRS. Uh, When I was in special operations, I worked in a specialized company called the Commanders and Extremist Force. Today, I think it's known as the Crisis Response Force. Anyways, this particular unit, the the idea behind it was it is the local SWAT team. And then you depend on other counterterrorism units that are more elite to come in, better funded, better trained um, to conduct a, a more complex or surgical operation. But the bottom line is, we're in the region, and sometimes you don't have the time. You have to be able to react. You have to be able to 
uh, reach back into your, your, your kit bag of tactics and equipment and source something uh, to be able to react. Um, in, the, in the realm of shoot, move, communicate, I just want to go over something real basic for you as an understanding. If, if two officers go to the academy uh, a year apart and they don't have a, a tactic to refer back to in order to shoot, move, communicate and can't get on the same sheet of music, then that's a problem. So the idea with this fire and maneuver drills that we did in Oregon is I need to have an understanding of the best practice, uh, the best tactic in order to establish um, security and be able to maneuver to save or rescue an officer or potentially maneuver on the enemy. So this whole term fire maneuver is exactly that, where generally speaking, the idea is you, you establish security by establishing a support by fire position, which uh, allows the maneuvering element to either flank or go in basically with the enemy keeping their heads down, um, being suppressed or being uh, engaged, uh, where the flanking maneuvering element can go in and rescue the officer or flank and maneuver on the enemy. And so um, when you're looking at maneuvering elements, especially in officer survival, you need to have an understanding of how to do that. The drill that we did with Oregon, I'll explain it to you. We, we established that an officer had gone down and that that officer had to um, provide medical first aid to themselves. In the military and special operations, we depend on a med contingency plan of self-aid, which is obviously you providing your own medical aid, buddy aid, which is self-explanatory, your buddy providing you the aid, or corpsman aid or medical aid, which is an EMS, an 18 Delta, a PJ, somebody with higher level of training to provide that uh, support for you. And that depends on a few variables. The, the severity of the injury, uh, the context of the situation that you're in, you know, if you're receiving overwhelming fire and it's a risk for the medic to run across an open field to come rescue you, you might not want to be yelling, I need a medic, especially if you could treat yourself. So we, we depend on ourselves first and foremost. Um, so we're not lulling or taking everybody else outside of the, out, out of the fight. In this particular drill, uh, the police officer was shot in the leg, but he had to defend his or her own life until reinforcements arrive. That reinforcement could be another person. It could be an individual showing up, providing fire support for you to crawl out of that situation or individually move out of that situation via a technique or tactic. An uh, individual movement technique known as IMTing, uh, which is referred to in the, uh, in the military, is a three to five second rush. And we actually say, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. That's three to five seconds where you can get up and you could move, but you don't want to overexpose yourself. Now, the variables are many. If you're receiving overwhelming fire, you're obviously not going to IMT in the open receiving overwhelming fire. And, and I, I don't mean never, because you might have to um, under certain circumstances, but there are instances where speed is security, where if there's a lull in fire, you need to pick your butt up and need to haul ass across an open area to save your butt. 
So in this particular drill, the injured officer was defending his life, shooting at a target across the front of the vehicle. And when reinforcements uh, arrived, then he put away his gun, or he or she put away his gun, applied the tourniquet, you know, because security is paramount. It's the number one priority in a gunfight. Uh, if you get injured and you're not fighting, defending your life, um, and that and that isn't lulled or isn't dealt with, you risk the potential of getting killed or getting somebody else killed. So security is number one. After security is uh, established or taking over in this case, then you could start treating the wound. Uh, a gunshot wound uh, via a laceration or a, a significant traumatic injury is the same. I'm not going to start putting on a tourniquet when I'm getting shot at. Um, I'll, I'll worry about that once I defend myself, uh, you know, establish a base of fire and get to a position in which I could do that. So in this case, the SWAT officer showed up. They started shooting from their vehicle, uh, providing a support by fire position while allowing the other officer to come in and rescue the downed officer who was applying the tourniquet to their leg. Now, if you look at the O'Sullivan um, tragedy, uh, Tara O'Sullivan tragedy that happened, unfortunately, she laid in her front in the front yard of that domestic uh, house uh, that she responded to for a long, extended period of time. Too long, in my opinion. And I will armchair quarterback that. I will, I will vocalize that because I want it to be known based on the facts that I understand, talking to insiders who uh, have investigated it and who understand it in its totality, that there's no instance at all where leaving a downed officer, and this goes for civilians as well, like your friends, your family, is, is right. Um, meaning, yes, you will have to risk your life, but that's a part of it, right? We understand that. And the fact that no officer went in there and risked their lives to save a Sullivan, despite, I don't want to hear like, oh, well, you know, it was a, a gunshot wound that they didn't, they, they pretty much determined that she wasn't going to survive. I don't give a shit. I, I honestly do not care because we didn't figure that out until post-mortem, until after she had passed away. And then we established like, yeah, there was no chance, guys. Like that's going to make us feel better. That doesn't make me feel better. I actually have anxiety over that because it, it makes me sick to my stomach to know that that officer, just like any officer I would mourn, passed away in the front yard of some stranger's house by herself while other officers with guns stood around the corner and hid inside of a carport. And I get it. Sometimes their people are ordered to do things. And sometimes people um, are, are, don't have the tactics to refer to. But I'm telling you from my perspective that it's not okay for that to happen. If, if you are an officer in law enforcement and your fellow officer gets shot and, and mowed down, you have a responsibility to go back in there and rescue them, especially when you understand the disposition and composition of the force, which in this case was one person with a rifle um, and, and with no good guys on scene, meaning no hostages on scene. Uh, they, those guys that were in that carport could have easily laid down a base of fire. They could have fire maneuvered or, or just took the chance or just took the chance. Um, if you look at that situation, it's almost the same situation that you would expect 
in an active shooting situation, which is moving to a crisis point where you are going to risk your life, where you are going to take a chance, where you can't mitigate all the risk. So, you know, I, like I hate it for those officers because they have to live with that for the rest of their lives. And, and I hope and pray that those guys um, are honest with themselves and haven't figured out or manipulated a justification in what they did. I hope they use it as a learning example so that it never happens again in their departments, amongst themselves, ever for the rest of history in, in, in their lives or their departments, because that is a very bad precedence to set. Now, maybe they didn't have a tactic. Obviously, they were scared, but maybe they didn't have a tactic. And that overarching is the problem. Uh, when you establish a base of fire, which is an element that's going to cover you while you move, it's it's literally cover me while I move, which is a, a bounding uh, while being overwatched, uh, you are establishing a more secure method or practice in which to rescue a down officer. And that's the way that you do it. Now, there are there are some good manuals and some good reads. I would recommend to everybody who wants to understand basic battle drills and infantry tactics, which this is, it's basics, to read FM, which is field manual, 7-8. And you'll learn about immediate action drills, react to contact, react to ambush, fire maneuver, and the list goes on. Those basic tactics, even though they're military tactics, play into the firing maneuver elements of patrol officers. You just replace the squad or the platoon or the company with individual patrol officers in those set positions. One patrol officer with a pistol is enough to provide a support by fire position for a guy with a gun. Because if I'm shooting at you and you're on the receiving end of it and I'm keeping your head down, that gives me an opportunity uh, to maneuver whether that's recover an officer or maneuver on the bad guy uh, while that person's head's being kept down. Um, and, and like I said, sometimes outside of that, if it's just you, you provide your own support by fire as you start to maneuver. There's no difference between that and what you guys and gals do in active shooting events where you're moving to a crisis point, potentially by yourself, potentially all alone. Uh, and I wanted to mention that because it's super important to me to highlight things that I learned along the way. Something that I learned, uh, something else that I learned in Oregon was something that I, I actually witnessed uh, with grip. And, you know, if, if you guys want to know how I teach grip, I'm actually going to do a better video uh, in the next couple weeks on grip. I'm going to start breaking down these individual tactics and teaching you detailed blocks of instructions with comprehensive ex explanations. Um, but if you guys want to go to YouTube, I think I have an older video of how to hold a gun or how to grip a gun. So there's a specific way on how to hold a gun. One of the biggest farces um, in, in tactical training that I've experienced and understand my context is, uh, you know, I was an 18 Bravo. So I was a special forces weapons guy. So I was a tactician. I taught for a living. Um, but also um, as a federal firearms instructor with the U.S. government, I also learned a lot about uh, teaching different kinds of people from indigenous forces like Afghans all the way up to federal agents in the FBI uh, and other government agencies. So one of the, the farces that I've seen taught over and over again 
is being very vague and very undetermined or indefinite about specifically how I hold a gun. Um, you know, people use terms like 60-40. I want you to hold this gun 60-40. What the hell does 60-40 even mean? What does it mean to hold a pistol with 60% grip in one hand and 40% grip in another hand? I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean like, hey, shake my hand as hard as you can. Now cut that in half. That's 50%. Well, that's, again, really vague. And I don't like to teach things vague. Unlike other fundamentals in marksmanship, grip is completely different. Because in grip, you're actually holding the gun and you feel what right feels like, but you don't, you can't see what right looks like. So you could actually be holding the gun completely jacked up and think that you're actually good. Unlike uh, front sight focus, for example, where you literally have to transition your field of view from target to front sight. So yeah, you don't have a diagnostic, you don't have a mechanical way of determining whether or not you have a good grip. So here's my breakdown. My breakdown is I have three tactics on the right or strong hand and three tactics on the left. And you can look that up on YouTube. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, um, the Philcraft Survival Channel. But something that I noticed with grip as I, as I taught it in Oregon was when you, when you set your front sight picture, let's say you have the time to grab that front sight. You know, I'm a bit, big advocate for the understanding of the science and the um, uh, let, let's call it the, uh, uh, acquisition, the visual acquisition of your front sight that you don't have the time to capture that when reacting to immediate threats, meaning a guy pointing a gun at you, you know, you blink in about uh, two tenths of a second. So a bl- in the blink of an eye, literally you could be shot in the face via somebody's reaction time. So if you're reacting based off an immediate threat, meaning something that's going to kick you, kill you quickly you don't have the time to transition your field of view from target to front sight. So if you do have the time to capture a front sight picture and you present that on target, I used to be taught um, that, hey, if you capture the front sight, hold on to the front sight and let it ride. And when you do that, you track the front sight through its duration. The problem that I was noticing uh, in Oregon is if you track the front sight through its duration, you'll make my, micro manip, uh, manipulations through the shot string because you're, you're concentrating on front sight focus and second guessing yourself in milliseconds as you break shots. You know, you break a shot in 0.15, you break a shot in 0.20. And as you're breaking these shots, you're tracking the front sight and looking where it lands and second guessing yourself. And that's a problem because if you just get a front sight picture, right? And you allow yourself to push that front sight and let's say it's in the face and you establish that's where your first shot's going to go. If you let it ride by holding proper grip and proper alignment on target and you allow the gun to cycle in its operation and settle in the same spot, you'll be reliable and you'll be repeatable. In fact, the drill that I do is we'll do five shot strings on the head. We'll go one, two, three, four, five. The guys will shoot that cadence, one, two, three, four, five, and they'll get a, a sight picture that first presentation. When they, when they push, push the gun and they trust their alignment and they hold the gun properly and they, they uh, give the proper cadence, the gun lands in the same spot. And so they're not micromanaging the process 
or the cycle of operation. But when they track the front sight, they're micromanaging what they see. And then they deviate the barrel in and out, left and right, up and down. And that's what jacks them up. They start breaking, they, they start taking tight groups that would naturally be there anyway, and they start deviating because they're micromanaging uh, the acquisition. So when you have that front sight picture and you have good alignment, you could shift back to target focus and let it run. Look reactionary, especially, now we're talking close proximity here. I'm not talking, one, as a, as a, uh, as a, uh, uh, a reminder, we're talking about self-defense, which means reacting to contact or reacting to threats, and we're also talking about close proximity. I'm not talking about the guys 25 yards away because that would dictate a different time window potentially for you. So I'm talking about your within 12 feet, which is the FBI statistic for law enforcement officers for over a decade of tracking law enforcement involved shootings, that the average is around 12 feet and in. And so if you think about that as well, when you're shooting that cadence, it's also keeping you conscious. And that's super important. Cadence is important uh, and something that we're going to talk about more on YouTube because I want you guys uh, to get the comprehensive approach to that. I wanted to mention that as well because it's something uh, as a tactic that that weighs on my mind and something that I think about because, um, you know, I think the problem with marksmanship and the problem with tactics, period, is we like to invent uh, new ways of doing things, right? We want our proprietary tactic or technique because tacticians have businesses. So if I make the new flavor of the day or the new style of the day, then I'm empowering myself and my company with some proprietary tactic. The problem is instead of doing that, we just need to revert back to the most natural state of doing things, which means don't overcomplicate basic tactics. Just figure out methods in which to master these basic skill sets. And that's what's going to make you an advanced or uh, intermediate shooter. I promise you. All right, let's talk a little bit about California, man. Oh my gosh. So California right now is, in my opinion, I mean, look, I was just in Manteca, California at 5.11. Big shout out to the guys and gals at the uh, Manteca store. California wildfires are completely out of control. And if you've been tracking at Fieldcraft Survival, all the things that we got going on, um, they just evacuated 50,000 uh, forced from their homes, 50,000 people um, uh, in the area of Santa Clar uh, Clarita. Sorry, I, I can't, sp I'm reading this all backwards. But they also took down the power of hundreds of thousands of people's uh, electricity. PG&E did this. So let me read you a little bit about the latest that's going on. 50,000 forced from homes as Tick fire burns thousands of acres in Santa Clarita. By the time you hear this, this is relevant news. More than 50,000 people were ordered to evacuate from their homes. Freeways were shut down and schools were closed as a brush fire erupted in Santa Clarita, swallowing homes Thursday amid high winds and hot conditions. Evacuations were ordered in more than 3,000 acre tick fire in the Santa Clarita area at 14 Freeway and 5 Freeway. And uh, uh, it's called Castaic uh, were subject to closures. The Los Angeles Fire County Fire Department said. So, on top of that, um, let's talk about the issue with the the, the power. So, PG&E, as a tactic for addressing uh, new fires, has decided 
to disconnect the power of, uh, uh, of hundreds of thousands of customers over this weekend. There's, there's obviously some, some things that are not, I don't, I wouldn't say valid, but there are things to talk about and consider in this. So PG&E, which is Pacific Gas and Electric, updated their outage maps on Thursday, and they said there's a severe critical fire weather in the forecast, which means high winds and the potential for fire. Now, the idea is if there's high winds and telephone line, or not telephone lines, but electric lines get broken and smashed and they spark fires, that could start a serious issue. So their statement, PG&E said in a news release um, that it's closely monitoring the forecast for dry offshore winds Saturday and Sunday night and have to turn off the power in the Sierra foothills, North Bay, Peninsula, Central Coast, East Bay, and Humboldt. The utility company has not released a total number of customers, but they're estimating at hundreds of thousands of people. Daniel Swain, a climatologist at uh, UCLA, noted the magnitude of the outage in the maps on Twitter, writing, um, the outage map suggests that the power cuts could extend across most of the Bay Area this weekend. Most of the Bay Area, which is significant. Uh, This is news after PG&E recently cut 179,000 customers Wednesday and Thursday to mitigate wildfire risk. Despite this, still a 16,000-acre Kincaid fire appeared um, to be in a shutoff zone. An outage earlier in the month impacted nearly 2 million California residents. So I want you to understand that PG&E's precedence is is completely new. Like this is this is new to everybody. Um, I don't think anybody knows how to handle this because not only are they shutting off power, but they have a plan for the rest of the season, uh, the the rest of this firing season, to. Um, cut off power to everybody and it's undetermined if if that will be their standard operating procedure every single year so i mean i want you to think about something if you don't have a generator and let's say you live in an urban environment so you don't have a lot of storage um, san francisco bay, the bay area right one of the most expensive areas in the country you don't have storage you don't have a generator uh you don't have uh, the space to contain water, um, like you're not going to collect water in the Bay Area. Um, you don't have a lot of anything as options, and you're just going to go without power. I mean, literally, you're just going to be without power completely, just nothing. And so when we talk about survival and preparedness, and we talk about the pillars of preparedness, we talk about the first pillar being your person or you, the second pillar being your mobility platform, and the third pillar being your safe house. How safe is your house? How prepared are you to deal with this uh, eventuality? If you're listening to this and you need to get prepared, please listen to the Safe House podcast on this subject matter. We've already got DMs from people who have thanked us about like with the content like, man, I started getting prepared. I didn't realize this power thing was going to be a thing. And now I'm sitting in the dark and uh, now I'm better prepared because of this situation. But we're also getting DMs like, hey, what am I supposed to do now? Well, listen to the Safe House podcast and start prepping yourself because you have a a few considerations here. One, you don't have power. How are you going to source power or how are you going to live without power? Two, 
there's still a risk of fire without power. Now you're even hurting uh, twice as much because hopefully PG&E is smart enough to keep the towers on for you. But if, you, if, they, if they don't, what are your power supplies to keep your cell phones charged so you can get in contact with friends, with family, with first responders if there is a fire that kicks off? Do you have fuel in your vehicle? Do you have the ability to escape via a bicycle, via uh, on foot, via a mobility platform in the worst case scenario? And that's super important to line out now because it, apparently, according to everybody, this fire season is going to be off the charts. Um, I'll read you a little bit more. Uh, this is going to be the third spell of gusty conditions in October. Uh, when the landscape is dry and parched, and the National Weather Service predicts it will be the most severe of the three. So they state confidence is high. We're going to see strong, gusty offshore winds this weekend. This looks like it will be the strongest of the three. For updates on this, you could actually visit PG&E's website um, and, and just Google PG&E, and they have all the updates of everything they're doing. In fact, I'm going to click on the link for you guys now and, it's, and just uh, talk to you about the latest events. It says right now, um, let's see... No real updates. Here it is. Get the latest updates on, on uh, PG&E's site. Here we go. Okay, so it says PG&E will be turning off power for safety. It has a number for information, but it says, based on the latest weather reading, PG&E will be turning off power in portions of our service areas outlined below. And it's basically everywhere. Um, and it, it actually has a date announced um, when it will be turning off power. It will be turning off power to Kern on the 21st and 22nd. Um, it will be a power shut off at 2 p.m. for County, Alpine, Amador, Butte, Calvers, El Dorado, Nevada, Placer, Plumas, Sierra, Tejama, and Yuba at 2 p.m. At 3 p.m., they're turning off Count, uh, Lake uh, Medicino, Napa, and Sonoma. At 1 a.m., San Mateo, and at 1 a.m., uh, Kern on the 24th. Um, I advise you guys to go there. Uh, I think it's pretty significant that they're turning out this much power. It's crazy. I used to live in Amador County. The fact that I would, if I was there, uh, I would be part of this. Um, but it says total customers impacted uh, for the cities, 23,000. Um, uh, and then it doesn't have any, uh, any timelines for the restoration time. A whole bunch of people are affected by this. It's, it's overwhelming how much, how much, uh, uh, how many cities and counties are listed? It's insane. So, I'm. I'm. It, this is unprecedented for me, and it's it's pretty insane that people um, are kind of subject to this. You know, obviously, public safety is a big concern for these guys. I get it to an extent, um, but if you're not prepared, or if they haven't given you time to prepare, uh, I can't imagine if you're impoverished and you live in these areas and you have nothing in the first place, then they cut your power. It's like holy crap, man. Uh, and I, I get the concern because I've been in the area with uh, the fire threat, and it's scary. I had a fire start behind my house in Jackson, California, uh, years back, and it, it burned 50,000 acres. It was insane. All right, so moving on. So the tactical industry, guys, man, you know, this, the tactical industry is something that, like, I've I've never been a fan of the tactical industry. And let me be clear when I talk about this in posts and everything else, I'm not targeting one person. Because let me tell you, as a, as a industry, the tactical industry has done a 180 degree turn to, to what it was when I was on active duty, uh, even, even a few years ago. 
I, I went to SHOT Show two or three times with uh, the military, represent, representing Special Operations Command. And I saw it turning at that time, but social media wasn't a huge thing. Now, if you go to SHOT Show, you are inundated with the industry being influencers. And look, I, I don't have a lot of beef with influencers. I think influencers are good when they're good. So what, what is my beef? Well, let me explain a couple uh, elements to my beef. One, I don't like gunplay. If, if you pay attention, right? If you give any attention or you pay attention to any of these influencers who are playing with guns, you are setting yourself up for failure and you're only supporting uh, ignorance, right? Because I, look, I, I know what guns can do. I know what they do to innocent people. I know what they do to bad people. Um, I, I've been in many gunfights myself. I, I know what guns do. And in the context of entertainment, um, yes, I shoot for fun, right? I shoot to, for fun. But there is a responsibility that's associated with shooting for fun. It's not just like I go out and I do cartwheels. I, I do exhibition shoots. Um, I'm irresponsible with that gun. I don't mind guys that have fun shooting guns. Like if you're slow-moing your video of you shooting a carbine, you're running and gunning on a flat range, and you're safe, you're responsible, like that's not what I have a problem with. I have a problem with where you're licking uh, the firearm in front of the camera, in front of kids as an influencer. I have problems with pretending like uh, it's a like it's a video game, pretending like shooting steel and shooting paper um, outside of IPSC and USPSA and IDPA, that it's, a, that, that it's a game. That somehow shooting a paper target that represents a human being is, is a game. Now, yes, again, I don't want to be hypocritical about this because I do shoot USPSA and I think it's really good for, the, uh, uh, for competition. It's good for camaraderie. It's good for your skill sets. But again, it's, it's in the context of competition and professionalism. It's not in the context of entertainment. And so I think a lot of people in the influencer realm are running out of content. And so if you're an influencer and you run out of content, what do you do? You start getting more extreme. It's like the only analogy I can get is, is, is a woman. If you're a woman and you're, in, and you're wearing clothes and you take pictures and you don't get enough likes and then you want to push the limits and get more likes, the only thing you have to do is expose more flesh. If you take off your shirt as a guy, same thing. You're going to get more attention. So it's like, where's the limit? Where do we draw the limit? Where we are so uh, hungry for attention, whether that's likes, monetization, engagement, whatever it may be, we're looking at analytics, and now we're like sitting down at drawing boards going, how can we be more controversial? How can we be more extreme and risky? How can, we, how can we do more stupid shit in order to get paid? That's a problem for me. The, the biggest problem I have in, in the fact that influencers do what they do is I get it. People in, on the internet do dumb shit. That's just inherently, I mean, when I was a kid on AOL, you know, with a, the dial up, I did dumb shit. But what I expect from trainers, um, from people who are in the gun industry and companies, I expect some level of professionalism. So when when companies are shadow sponsoring kids 
that are doing this, that's when I have beef as well. Because now we have a million, multi-million dollar company providing optics, guns, uh, equipment on, on the low, low, right? Because they wouldn't overtly say, hey, this guy's a sponsor shooter or this guy represents us. They're just like, hey, here's some stuff. Just go ahead and do your thing. Why? Because they got good analytics. It's like, are you, are you out of your mind? I mean, as a company uh, that, especially in the firearms industry, you have a responsibility to responsible 2A owners, to the civilian populace uh, in integrity, um, in your values. You have a responsibility because we don't want to lose that right. And so the dumber we look as an industry, the dumber we look as a 2A community, uh, the more likely that we're going to have to combat politicians. Uh, we're going to have to uh, uh, depend on the NRA and all these agencies to support us. Because it's like, why, why would we uh, stand up for your, for your gun rights or gun laws when you guys are clowns? You guys are a clown shows. And so I don't like that, man. And I don't want to go to SHOT Show. Like, I don't want to show up at SHOT Show because, one, I don't want to be around uh, unprofessional people who are teaching gunplay. Like, I don't fucking play with guns. Guns are used uh, responsibly in hunting, um, in sport shooting, in, in um, uh, at competition shooting, and self-defense. And so you don't have to get risque uh, if you have that kind of content. There's plenty of stuff to go around. It's just disheartening and disappointing when I see dumb shit on the internet with guns, and especially coming from intelligent people. So my beef is with that. I did a post today, and people are like, are you, are you singling out these people? I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm actually not. Because on top of those people, there's a hundred other people that are doing it. What I want to do is not concentrate on those fucksticks. What I want to concentrate on is the responsible tacticians companies, influencers, uh, trainers that are doing the right thing and not just waste my energy on people who are doing the wrong. Um, what else here? Let me get down to the list. Also, it, the uh, uh, in the tactical industry, in the tactical space, there's got to be a way for us to figure out who is legitimate, who is the right person uh, to go train with because they're they're doing it right. Uh, I don't like tacticians who teach from theory. Uh, I want somebody to define the why. Uh, I want somebody who can demonstrate their tactics and just doesn't talk about tactics. And the list goes on. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about Mexico. Oh, man, Mexico. So earlier in the week, I was asked uh, why I seem to be perpetuating uh, a bad situation without telling the whole truth. And, you know, when I... Look, I'm responding to the negative part of this because I want to educate uh, and put all this stuff in context. Uh, one, one on Instagram, uh, you can't really outline. Uh, yeah, that's why I like podcasts and YouTube. You can't outline your entire thought comprehensively. You only get snippets of information. And that's a problem, right? Because I want to be able to tell the whole story. So... On IG, when you're doing IG, uh, you, you have the opportunity to like clickbait people or snapshot people or give them uh, you know, a buy-in, but then you have to be able to explain it even further. And so that's why I love these long-form podcasts. 
one, if you don't know about Sinaloa, Mexico, and the situation with the cartel, the federal government, uh, with the military and police, went to go arrest uh, a significant cartel member's son. I'm not, I don't even want to say their names because I don't want to highlight highlight their names. Um, uh, anyways, this dude, it, it's L in his name. His son was rolled up, and they had him contained in a building, and then the cartel launched and went after him. And what they did was they basically surrounded the cops that surrounded the house. And they said, listen, we're going to kill you all. They started getting into a gunfight. They actually killed up, I think, eight people. And that's probably the low end. I think it's been, it's been reported higher. But they showed up with 50 cow machine guns mounted on the back of vehicles, up armored vehicles. This isn't the good guys. This is the bad guys. There's reports of helicopters with guns from the bad guys. They even emplaced, uh, I posted a video of it, they emplaced a 50 cal sniper uh, into a position that ran across the street with a scoped 50 cal uh, a sniper rifle, and he started dumping on these dudes. Uh, what's crazy is I actually got a message from somebody who said, hey, just letting you know, that guy or that situation happens all the time. They have 50 cal sniper rifles and one of my buddies was killed by one of those guns and he was a, a military guy. So these guys are using this against the military and police. Right now, um, Mexico is set to break their record of, I believe, 29,000 murders. Actually, let me look that up real quick. Um, Mexico um, murder rate this year. Um, it, so they're, they're, they're on par to beat their, uh, their, the deadliest round of murders. 2017 was Mexico's deadliest year on record with 31,174 murders. That's insane. 31,174,000 murders. So they're looking this year to break that actually. And so when you, when you actually, uh, put it in, in, uh, in comparison to Syria, last year in Syria, this is 2018, there were 20,000 innocent civilians that were killed. 20,000. Right across our border, there was 31,174 people murdered in Mexico. And some will say, oh, well, Mexico is big. Or, you know, it, it, that's, that's not including this statistic or that statistic. Does it, does it really matter? I mean, let's not, let's not get wrapped around the axle in, in minutia. 31,000 human beings is a significant number. I mean, it's, it's actually insane to me. And it's insane to me that people are justified. Like when I posted this and I talked about the murder rate, somebody was like, well, it's actually the CIA's fault. You know, the, the DEA and the CIA, it's their fault because they originally started the problem and, and Americans are the actual problem because they're using the drugs. Really? I mean, really? So, so let's forget about cartels murdering innocent police officers, military and civilians in Mexico, and then that drama bleeding over into our country. And let's pretend that doesn't exist. And let's just point the finger at the DEA and the CIA. Yeah, I get there's more variables and, and historic things that happened. And, you know, it's, it's a complex situation. But let's not ignore the fact that in 2017, there was 31,000 murders, and this year they're probably going to break that record. So let's let's not let's not think about um, uh, 
you know, what could have been or what should have been. And let's focus on what we could do to improve the situation. Because my whole thing is, look, we've had a war on drugs. We've done all these things to mitigate risk. And still, they're breaking records right across the border. If you think that it doesn't affect us, talk to Sheriff Mark Lamb in Pinal County. Talk to uh, Mason, gun fighter on IG operating out of Phoenix. The cartel is everywhere in the United States. I mean, there's things I can't even talk about because I get the intel reports, but I talk to police officers all over the U.S. These guys and gals are dealing with cartel as far northeast as New Hampshire or New England. And so the cartel is saturating our communities. That's human trafficking. That's drug trafficking. That's everything in between. That's murder. That's The list goes on. Kidnappings. The list goes on. So uh, when I brought up Mexico originally, I brought it up in the, uh, the context of understanding that, hey man, what happens if we declare uh, the cartel a, a uh, you know, a, outside of a criminal organization, a terrorist organization? Could it get really bad? The answer is hell to the yes, it could get bad. Imagine if we started targeting cartel members, which we do in the United States, but let's say we start targeting them overseas. Or let's say we start offer, offering support to the military, uh, direct support to the military um, in Mexico, and then the cartel feels like they're being targeted. Where do you think they're going to retaliate? These guys um, have more money, more power, more weapons, more manpower than any organization on earth. I mean, if you've ever watched a, um, a beheading video from ISIS, Mexico's cartels make Al-Qaeda look like child's play. I mean, like, really. I mean, I, there's videos of them dragging women that have been accused of adultery and then hitting them in the back of the heads with hoes and axes and, and uh, garden tools and executing them on camera, of them dismembering people alive on camera in Mexico of recent. And, and this isn't an Islamic uh, jihadist uh, organization. These are drug traffickers and dealers and growers. These dudes are insane. Uh, Raul talked about it a lot because he has experience in law enforcement and also he, he understands the situation. You know, we talked to Ed's manifesto a lot. It's a very toxic and uh, uh, bad situation that can affect us in the near future. I mean, you could see uh, cartel attacks on, at a large scale in Phoenix, in Tucson, in Texas. And I'm, I'm mentioning that to you guys because I want you to understand the severity of, uh, of that situation as I understand it. Look, I have a degree and a bachelor's degree in crisis management and homeland security. So when I look at these things, not just the degree, but the experience in counterterrorism, I'm looking at it from a strategic point of view. Like I'm seeing the second and third order effects and trying to get ahead of this. So we need to be involved, whether that's politically, uh, whether it's uh, legislation, um, new, new initiatives, paying attention to the media, uh, like the good media on the facts of this situation, and then potentially uh, reinforcing our positions where we're at in America. I mean, there's cartel hits that take place uh, every single day in America. There's retaliations, there's murders, um, there's grows. I mean, the, the list of 
the, the number of cartel grows in the United States is somewhere around 10,000. And that's coming from a subject matter expert who has followed cartel grows in America for decades. 10,000 illegal cartel um, supplied grows in the United States. That's the estimate, uh, which is insane. It's crazy. Uh, I wanted to talk about that because it is a bad situation and we need to pay more attention to it. And not paying attention to it is probably not the best tactic. Uh, this weekend, we also did a, uh, a block of instruction on Stop the Bleed. Stop the Bleed is the most neglected um, tactic inside of our arsenal. Uh, it's something that, I mean, I, I, I am fabricasted at the amount of people that show up to our tactical combat casualty care courses. I'll fill a 20-man course in pistol and carbine all day long, but nobody shows up uh, to stop the bleak train. Why? Because it's not sexy. It's not cool. Uh, people think it's boring, but it is the most relevant training that you can get. If you want to improve uh, your situation, uh, especially in your overall preparedness game, come to Teachable C. Uh, we got Kevin Falk coming out um, from uh, um, Florida. He's flying in. Uh, Kevin Odin's Devil Dog Consulting, but he's also a, a Fieldcraft Survival subcontract instructor. He will get you certified in TCCC. We're running that course in November. It's 17 and 18. It's two different courses, two different one-day courses. So you can show up either or, Saturday or Sunday, um, and learn how to stop the bleed. Stopping the bleed includes stuffing gunshot wounds, puncture wounds, and also applying a tourniquet. Uh, he talks about the March algorithm, or not algorithm, but acronym that we use, which is massive hemorrhaging, airway, respiration, circulation, and he will set you up for success. Look, and stop the bleed when applying a tourniquet, you have to understand principally how a tourniquet works. Uh, a lot of people get wrapped around like the different kinds of tourniquets. Uh, the biggest mistake I've seen law enforcement do is use Chinese-made tourniquets and not North American rescue tourniquets. We sell North American rescue tourniquets on PhilCraftSurvival.com for $29.99. It's absolutely super cheap, and it's a piece of equipment that will save your life. Don't go to Starbucks for, for a day or two. Um, you know, don't, don't stay at home one night and don't go out to dinner, and you have enough money to buy pieces of equipment that will save your life, and that's irreplaceable. Like, I, I pay 22 bucks. I don't make a lot of money on a tourniquet. It's not about um, making more money. It's about saving lives. If you're going to carry an everyday carry pistol, ensure that you carry an everyday carry tourniquet. And, and we recommend the North American Rescue uh, Cat Gen 7 or Cat 7 tourniquet, which is the, the latest and greatest. Um, these Chinese-made ones, uh, we've actually tested them with their windlasses. When we turn them out and just slight pressure, those things snap off. They are not good to use. I do not recommend them. They come from factories. They're made of uh, crappy material. The Cat Gen 7 will set you up for success. Also, the Soft T we recommend as well. It is NAMT certified, which is the, um, uh, the, the schoolhouse and end-all be-all for certifications that also represent uh, tactical combat casualty care, uh, which you'll receive that training in November. Um, we did uh, uh, recently... Uh, add more tourniquets to the uh, to fieldcraftsurvival.com. We actually have the vehicle trauma response kits uh, that are out of stock, but we have the BHRKs, 
which is the basic hemorrhaging response kit, which is that Stop the Bleed kit uh, back in stock as well. Uh, if you're interested, check out PhilCraftSurvival.com. We actually did a recent video on it. I did on the uh, visor panel that we use. Um, my whole thing is it's cool to have med kit, but if you don't have it within arm's reach, it's kind of all for nothing, right? If, if you're in a vehicle accident and you need a tourniquet, like where is it? It's probably in the back in your aid bag, but it needs to be within arm's reach. It doesn't need to be in your center console. It doesn't need to be in your glove box where when you flip the car upside down, you lose it. It needs to be somewhere where you have access to it. So make sure, like we have the, the modular visor panel ties into the visor on your, uh, on your vehicle. Piece of Velcro, you can take the BHRK uh, um, med kit, stuff it in our pouch with a tourniquet and have access to it within arm's reach uh, if you have an accident. You know, statistically, 30,000 people die every single year from vehicle accidents. Uh, there is going to be a lot of injuries associated with vehicle trauma, and having a tourniquet on hand is a good rule of thumb and practice. So please take that seriously, guys. Um, lastly, 511 Tactical. We've been doing a lot of things with 511 Tactical. We're excited about working with them on different projects uh, and different things we're doing. Please stay tuned to 511 Tactical's channels. Uh, we usually release when our new training is happening, uh, but we expect the end of this year leading into 2020 that I will travel at least one to two times a month to teach uh, US-wide. So I have plans to be on the East Coast and West Coast teaching uh, preparedness seminars, overland basic uh, seminars, uh, all over. Speaking of overlanding, we did just drop overlandtraining.com, www.overlandtraining.com. Look, we separated Overland Training. It's a it's a, uh, 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 a partnership between Overland Journal and Expedition Portal, um, and we're doing Overland Training, where we're teaching Overland uh, basics, recovery, med, survival, based around your mobility platform. If you want to attend training, stay tuned to at Philcraft Mobility, on IG and um, overlandtraining.com because all of our training is going to be coming and rolling out very soon. Uh, in fact, by the time you listen to this podcast, you can actually go there and see one of the first courses that it's up and advertised and ready to drop. Um, I'm super excited about it because uh, overland training is very different in that it's obviously not tactical, dr tactically driven, but if you isolate it as a skill set and you learn the basics of off-roading, uh, recovery, um, how med ties into your vehicle, um, even basic maintenance, those things will make you better at your over-preparedness game. And we're excited about the future with uh, Overland Training, Overland Journal, and Expedition Portal. Super excited about it. Guys, it's been, a, uh, it's been an hour. The Tactical Review Podcast. Look, I want to keep you guys in the know and with the, the latest and greatest of what's going on. Um, you know, I'm on the road right now. I love doing these podcasts for you guys. Um, I appreciate all the things that you guys do for Philcraft Survival, but I love you guys' input as well. Um, please keep it coming. What, what you guys want from us is what we drive our vision towards because we want to make sure that, you know, if there's certain content, certain issues, um, things in preparedness, we're in this together. We do this for you guys, whether that's consulting, uh, educating uh, ourselves to educate you guys. Uh, we want to be the subject matter experts in preparedness for you. So if you have any inquiries, mike.fieldcraft.gmail. 
You guys can hit me up on our social media, at, uh, my personal DM at mike.a.glover. And uh, I appreciate you guys, man. Uh, it Preparedness is about the network first and foremost before you get into these pillars. And the fact that we're building this family and this network together, I'm super excited about it. I appreciate you guys' support. I appreciate you taking preparedness serious. Uh, and, and I appreciate all the things that you guys do for Philcraft Survival. Until next time, guys, stay alert, stay alive. Stay alive.